the last week we have a scenario where we have role players. We had as much as 20, 25 role players are in there. And part of the role play was this group, this satanic group that was causing fires. And so the cadre, um, not that they got a little carried away, but the cadre decided to let the students see, the investigators see what was going on. And so they held this funeral for the suspect. And as they did that, which I didn't even think about it, but all of a sudden, you know how you feel like somebody's looking at you? And I turned around, looked behind me, all the traffic at the base, all the Army and Air Force guys stopped their vehicles, got out, and they saluted the casket. They had no idea whatsoever that this was role-playing. And I very quietly went back in my cottage and closed the door. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson, and joining me once again with co-hosting support uh, from episodes one and three, Wheat Baldwin. Wheat, thanks uh, thanks for being here, and thanks again for letting us borrow the studio. Thanks, Robbie. I'm glad to be with you. And uh, when we talk about legends and legacies, and you, you tend to think about those people who were teachers and mentors over the course of your career, maybe it was somebody who held similar jobs before you got the job or filled those positions. And our guest today has been all of those to some degree to one or both of us over the course of our careers. He's been a firefighter, a safety professional at an amusement park, a fire marshal, a private investigator, an instructor, and he's been the head of the state's fire marshals academy. He's an author, and he was on the committee that uh, created one of the most impactful NFPA standards dealing with the fire investigations community, uh, the NFPA 921 committee, and served for seven code cycles, if I remember did my math right and uh, it was it was the technical committee secretary as well and uh, I'm I would I would have a difficult time putting all those pieces together not to mention the timeline of 50 plus years That's right. um, uh, or so of a career uh, so I'm going to let him tell the story of how he started in this business at what had to be the age of five because you don't look a day <laughs> over 55 uh, because um here with us today is uh, Russ Chandler. Russ, uh, thanks for joining us, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, yes, I did start, but I was young. I was 16 when I started, well, like 16, most of us were back then. Uh, we started out doing that, but it was uh, in Maine. And one of the wonderful things about Maine, which I found out I think might have leaned me towards that, is that if you're a volunteer firefighter during the day and something happened, the whistle went off, you get to leave school. So uh, I know a lot of us that were young try to join at that point, but I got hooked on it immediately. Uh, didn't matter what type of call it was, especially wildland fire, even if you're not a volunteer firefighter. And we had a, a being in the rural Maine, if there was a wildland fire, all males left school, and they gave us rakes and brushes, and we went out and put out fire. Whether you were in the, in the fire department as a volunteer? That's right. Wow. didn't matter. Of course, we gave all the rookies, the ones who weren't firefighters, the Indian tanks, because that way they carried the water for us, and we just carried the rakes. <laughs> that, so, that's what experience will do for you. Yeah, we were smart. We were firefighters, so plain where, and simple. Whereabouts in Maine were you? Of all things, Damariscotta, Maine. Damariscotta. Uh, yeah, I couldn't grow up in Bath. You know, I had to grow up in Damariscotta, Maine. Um, which is where I started. And that's where I was born and raised, Amherst New Harbor area. Gotcha. Where'd you go out of Maine? Um, once I, I actually joined the Navy, Navy. Uh, what happened. And even in the Navy, I joined uh, the local fire department. Didn't run many calls because of duty uh, for the service. 
But um, when I did get out, um, I went back and and started doing volunteer work again, not only for fire, but EMS. In Maine? In Maine. And I was career EMS in Maine. I went with paid ambulance service. Uh, It's a different connotation uh, today than it was back then. Back then, it was so essential. Uh, We didn't have rescue squads. The actual, the funeral directors are the ones who provided EMS service, which that's kind of scary. Kind of a conflict of interest there, you think? (laughs) But um, I was so fortunate to get hooked up with a a company that eventually I became manager with them after only a couple of years. And and I still ran volunteer work back in my hometown where we started our first rescue. I was involved in starting up uh, the first rescue squad service in my hometown. But uh, that's where I started off. But then I got an opportunity to go to Petersburg, Virginia, back to Virginia. Loved Virginia. Was that uh, where your naval service was? That's what most of my naval service was. And I, and I love the fact that I could be in the mountains in two hours, or I could be at the beach in two hours, and history. Yeah. And I loved history that was here. So that's what brought me back that and a few other things family-related. But um, got a job with Petersburg. Uh, it was so fortunate they just annexed the city. There were 30 openings in police and 30 openings in fire. I had thought about law enforcement at one time, but I like the camaraderie and the whole idea of being with a team and not being by yourself in a car someplace. And so I went in and uh, got chosen to be a firefighter in Petersburg. And what year was that? 1973 is when that was. Yeah. No rookie school. Yeah, rookie no, school rookie was here. Your station. uniform, rookie, go get it. They uh, put me in turnout gear, threw me down to Station One, which doesn't exist today. That's gone. And uh, Station One, they said, if that bell rings and you're not on that tailboard, you're fired. Keyword tailboard. Yep, keyword tailboard. But even more, the fact that they didn't tell me the bell ring for every station in the entire city. So all night long, I was <laughs> jumping up. a lot of time up, on the tailboard. Stood on the tailboard. Nobody else showed up. I went back to bed. So it was my first night. So <laughs> typical way of things are handling. But. So how did you know it was for your company? If the bell went off, does, uh, does somebody make an announcement in the house? or The announcement's made. Uh, but to be honest with you, I wasn't quite, you know, when you first get started, you don't understand everything else on the radio. And again, I was, God help me, I was a Yankee and didn't understand the accents maybe that much. But they were, they were just, they loved what they did. But, uh, but the bell system also, we had, we had boxes. That's something you don't see alarm, anymore. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. a box alarm, a 3113 came in and I didn't know which one it was. Jump up and stand on that tailboard. But the driver and the officer knew, so you just followed oh, yeah. along. Yeah. After that, that's right. And how long did you stay in Petersburg? I was only there two years. Um, I, it was actually the best time of my entire fire service career in the aspect that I don't remember a shift when we didn't roll. And uh, the fires that we fought and the huge warehouse fires and things that happened. And, and I think learning at that point about depending on each other. And the firefighters I served with then are the people that I admire the most today. But, and I actually, um, we didn't have, uh, of course, we didn't have the technology you have today. But I realized there was a slight problem in the fact that we go to a trailer park. And the trailer parks, we had to literally, the numbers on the trailer were written in pencil on the door. Mm-hmm. We'd have to run up to each door. And so I went to Station 4, which is a little quieter, and I thought, this is nuts. And so I sat down, and I started making maps and sheets to show where all the trailers were. And I went out and on my day off and wrote those other things down and created a map book. Um, sadly, um, the chief was not appreciative. I didn't do it right. It's not the chief's fault. But I didn't get his permission, number one. Uh. Number two, even though I told the um, uh, the city that 
I wanted to copy these. I, I told them this is my project. It wasn't the Chiefs, but they still let me make all the copies and everything. And, and he ended up getting some flack for it. But I was very glad to, glad to hear that for decades afterwards those map books were still used. But at that point, I'd kind of ticked off the Chief a little bit, and along comes this job opportunity I couldn't turn down. And which one was that? That was King's Dominion. King's Dominion. Yeah, um, I was a four-wheel drive buff. Went to KD when they just had the uh, animal preserve. The Kingsmen used to have something called Lions Country Safari, another company altogether, but they were there. And when I went there and this guy drove by in a red Chevy Blazer, remember they were the big ones then, and had lights on it, and I stopped and started talking to him. And he said, oh, no, he says, I'm nothing to do with the fire department. He says, I'm the groundskeeper. And I said, well, huh? In a, said, in a fire truck. In a fire truck. Right. And I said, what? You're the groundskeeper? And he said, yeah. He says, uh, it was sitting there. Nobody had it. I just, I've been using it for the last couple of months. He said, we don't have a fire chief. He said, that's something you'd like to know to do. And two weeks later, I was a fire chief at King's Dominion. Well, there you go. Right place and the right time. That Good goes point. back to that. So, what, well, you know, um, fire chief at an amusement park. That's, uh, you know, I, I worked there a little bit with this guy. So I kind of got a clue. What kind of. What kind of fire problems or EMS problems were you seeing back in the you know, late 70s and 80s at, a, at an amusement park? Well, and the park it just was getting ready to open. And the key thing about today, the park is, is nowhere near the problem it used to be. There were no safety officials. Not only was I uh, the fire chief, and by the way, I want to say I was the assistant fire chief. We intentionally gave the chief's position to the county chief, Mike Harmon. We didn't want to have any conflicts there, and we wanted to work together. True. And it worked out well because uh, eventually Mike Harmon, the chief of the county, uh, we went to him with his plan and set it up that off-season, we had eventually got a mini-pumper that we actually became a responding unit of Hanover County. And so we responded on calls in the interstate, house fires, EMS calls, which for the park. But the biggest thing that happened at the park was being brand new. We were under construction. We had a warehouse that was, well, a maintenance house that had uh, methyl ketone, fiberglassing, welding, things that were being made at the park. Everything from the roofing material at the park to all those uh, different decorations are all made there, not only for King's Dominion, but for two other parks, Carowinds and King's Island. That process, with no safety people in, involved, uh, we had fires right at one right after the other. We had over 200 fires my first year. Oh, wow. Uh, it was quite shocking. And, and, and not only that, eventually uh, EMS came under the uh, fire uh, the system fire chief there at the park and uh, i was able to handle that as well but, and and when it comes to fires at the park the one thing you got to think of it's twenty thousand people in the summer and then we turn around we got 22 24 kitchens i guess or at least and yeah. all the individual restaurants individual restaurants and each of them has a manager that usually is 18 or 19 years old and that was a uh, recipe for disaster we were all very responsible oh, trustworthy yes, at 18 or 19 they, uh, that and the, uh, the enthusiasm of the last day of the park, we usually had two or three fires where they wanted to burn their sneakers in a plastic trash can on a wooden roller coaster. So those type of things were exciting. Oh, that's fair. And we, you wound up going to Kings Dominion after Russ, or were you there with Russ? Uh, you had just left to take I the county left. job uh, when, when I started there in the uh, loss prevention department. So I was a seasonal uh, EMT and firefighter there. Um, things worked out, so I was able to go through college while working at the park uh, and then eventually got the position of loss prevention um, became the assistant fire chief so <laughs> my mentors at this table today I followed Russ to a lot of places so what kind of what kind of groundwork did he set for you in the job at King's Dominion moving it into that role was it uh, what did he do for well, you well there were very big shoes to follow there's no doubt about that but 
we uh, encompassed safety and loss prevention and fire suppression and the arrangement that he had set up with the county he's exactly right in the off season uh, the career staff that was still at the park would take the pumper and respond anywhere on, onto the interstate commercial industrial um, and it's made leaps and bounds of course since we left but uh, it was a stepping stone position you had the ability to meet people to interact with different agencies um, people don't understand the amount of, of work and coordination it takes to run 3,000 individual employees for the summer and drop back to 300 sometimes less in the winter and then then have to deal with 20 or 30,000 guests oh on easily a busy, on a, a on single a day. day and you know the big thing that I think with King's Dominion um, the one thing I'm the proudest of uh, that is the fact that when I discovered how dangerous those rides were and the fact that the sky ride which doesn't exist anymore thank God but the sky ride had a clamp so when that car was pushed onto the cable it was literally a magnetic clamp if the wind got to a certain, I think it was 20 miles an hour, is that right? It would shut down. It would shut down, thank God, because if not, if the car tilted too much, it would actually come off the wire. It so, wouldn't bring the cars back in. It shut down where they were. Yes. And that's, I remember in the time I was up there bringing in the, the ladders ride. from Hanover, Hanover, Henrico, and doing skyride evacuation drills right mm -hmm. before the season opened. I remember doing that. Yeah, and that was really when we went to Mike again. He turned around and put Rick Birch in charge of it. And uh, Rick and I worked together to get all the equipment there, and I was able to show them what needed to be done, get the maintenance staff in there. And not only did we do that, we did the heavy technical rescue. Remember Russ Mullenauer mm -hmm. uh, went up there, and we said, okay, what are we going to do if we have an incident on the tower? Uh, how are we going to handle that? So uh, we got to actually do rappelling off the tower and things like that to handle some of those emergencies as well as the um, other rides that had problems and what we would do in those particular situations. So we did a lot in the, be in the beginning. So. I recently found some photos in the office of Russ. Uh, he and I were going off the Eiffel Tower on three-strand braided uh, goal line rope, which was great from 300 feet to about 100 feet, and then it started to unwind on you. <laughs> and I want to stress that was Russ Mullenauer. Oh, uh, oh that Russ, yeah. Well, send me those pictures. We'll, uh, we'll put those up, too. and let uh, That's good stuff. Let, let the newbies see how it was done old school. <laughs> And, and it, I, I thought the interesting thing about the park, my short time there, particularly, and I was more seasonal. I didn't work much in the off season, but it was. It seemed like every season there was something different. You know, a new ride, a new show, a new attraction, a new. You know, they did away with the um, animal safari and went to a water park eventually. So, uh, what kind of challenges did that pose for you coming in year after year? Well, the first challenge we had was the animal park is how we're going to handle that because we had a tram. Well, first of all, the year that I visited, there were cars that went through. Sure, you drove through Wild yeah. Animal Safari. Oh, wow. And uh, the, the kind of funny story about that is that I worked part-time when I was at Petersburg. I did get a, uh, for a short time, I worked for a Firestone Tire. And I didn't even know anything about the park. That park had just opened. And this guy came in, he wanted his tire replaced, and he said he has coverage because of road you know, insurance. And I said, sure, what happened? He said... He said, a, a, a tiger, I'm sorry, he said a lion bit his tire. And I said, dude, we're going to cover it no matter what, okay? You don't have to tell me that story. So he went on and on swearing about it. Well, I filled out the information. Well, when I went back to King's Dominion, I looked at the incident number one at King's Dominion at Lion Country was a lion biting a tire. It was the same guy. So a small world, to say the least. But the fear was the tram. What are we going to do if the tram catches on fire while it's in the cat section? And those animals are wild. There's no mm -hmm. question. We actually lost a ranger at Kings Island. Mm -hmm. Got uh, the kid 
uh, got so friendly with him, he thought they were safe, and he actually opened his door, and that was it. And so I had to go in a safety person and, and work on that. But what do we do about that? So uh, we, we explored different things about how we, if the tram shuts down, how are we going to get people out? Do we put the cats up? What if somebody's hurt? And so that developed, and then with the rides, certain rides are um, more hazardous than others. And the, the whole idea is a bigger thrill, of course, but was to get rid of some of those rides that created the bigger problems. Wow. I mean, you had to reprogram the tram. I remember that it was programmed that when it stopped in an emergency condition, that the doors automatically opened, which was great for yes. the duck section, but not so great <laughs> for the big animal section and the cats. And so that was reprogramming. And they did burn up a tram in uh, Kings Island. Um, the spray foam insulation that the that they used to keep it cool from the uh, air conditioning, we had no idea the flammability rate of that. And uh, they successfully evacuated the tram without any injuries, but it, it was an elevated tram also. Mm-hmm. Um, replaced the, the portion when we would drive through before and then burned the tram. I, I remember being there one day and getting a call for the line, not the tram car smoking. That It was the line was smoking, something in the line. and. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll go in there, and you had the double, almost like a Sally Port gate. You had to go through, open one, get in, close it, right. get to the next one, go through. And I go on through the second one, and one of the zookeepers called me on the radio and said, don't get out of the truck. I said, okay, why? He goes, the cats are still out. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Rolled the windows up, <laughs> sat right there until he told me it was good to go. So, But well, the other thing is about Kings of Man, too, is the safety aspect. I know this is a fire podcast, but we learned to, and again, parts of my career, learn to listen to people. Uh, we had one of the employees said, you know, I get a shock on the mini bumper cars. Mm-hmm. And he said, I got a shock. She said, I, I had a shock when I got off. Said, no, no, no. Electricity's in the ceiling and the negative is on the base. And so I got thinking about it. I said, well, why discount that? So I had them go out and check. Lo and behold, they miswired it. Wow. The electrical was on the steel plate on the bottom and the ground was on the wire at the top. It was on the cage type at the top. Oops. And they reversed that. Seriously. Whoops. <laughs> so we kept busy. Yeah. So uh, moving from uh, roller coasters and lions and tigers, and um, you went to Hanover. Is that right? That is correct. How did you get to Hanover from King's Dominion? I um, just down thirty and take a right. <laughs> Everybody likes it. Yeah. It's not too far from <laughs> the truth. I actually didn't even apply for the job. I someone said something about the job, and uh, I had some park related. I had to go down and see Chief Harmon about, and I walked in, and Chief Harmon and uh, Chief Birch were. Uh, discussing what they're going to do about the fire marshal position. And uh, I said, well, um, I thought it might be interesting. And next thing I know, about three weeks later, I was the fire marshal of Hanover <laughs> County. But being the first fire marshal was a challenge in itself, to say the least. So you were the only, you were a staff of one? Um, yes, because we had the entire uh, career staff was the chief, the deputy chief, the secretary, and then myself. I was the fourth person to be hired. Rick Birch was the deputy, deputy chief. chief deputy chief. Yeah. And both of those guys, I still want to get on here one day, too. Oh, you got to. Rick Birch. So yes. uh, if they're listening to this, uh, be ready for a phone call. <laughs> uh, so you're the first one. What? Uh, you, yeah, I came into the fire marshal's office after a long history of fire marshals in Chesterfield, but uh, how did you start it off from scratch? Luckily, I can't praise enough Mike Harmon. Uh, what a phenomenal individual. Um, and uh, he had some ideas, but he also left it up to me, and that was one of the first things I did is that I went out and I called uh, Henrico County, and I looked at the size of our department and where we wanted to be in a few years, and so I called Prince William County, and then I also had some contacts at Virginia Beach, one of the guys I went to a class with, 
And so I went to their departments and learned out what they did, how they handled things, what was going on, and uh, what needed to be done. So again, back to uh, what I call the brotherhood also is the fact that know your resources. And I uh, went and found out uh, different things and was able to get great education from all of them. But the hardest thing I found out was there was no statewide fire code. Uh, we re- at the park, we relied on uh, corporate had a code that we mm-hmm. followed. But uh, I got to the county, and there was no code whatsoever. There had been no inspections ever. Wow. Well, I can't say that. Chief Harmon, of course, went out and did uh, what he could when they got a call and things like that. Um, and there had been no investigations done except for what maybe the sheriff had done. There hadn't been any felony arson arrest uh, for a while. And there was only like a one or two that the sheriff's department was able to do on that. So it was a whole new world. It was a whole wide open book that I had to try to figure out what we were going to do. So did you uh, wind up developing your own county code at that point? Is that the process you went through? That was interesting because when I got the job and it said fire marshal, um, there was some concern uh, about the businessmen and what's going to happen with the fire code. Uh, there was a petition. I think there were like 500 names that were signed that said, we don't need a fire code in Hanover County. Uh, several of those people showed up at the fire board meeting, sorry, at the county board of supervisors meeting, and they stated that I had a business in Richmond. The fire code drove me out. I had a business in Enrico. The fire code drove me out. Now I'm here, and you're going to try to drive me away. And it wasn't just one or two. We're talking about several people that did that. And at the time, I was very upset with the board of supervisors. And I just, I ranted and raved when we got out of that meeting because they came up with a brilliant idea of creating a committee to look in what we needed to have for a fire code. We need a fire code, but we didn't know what we needed. We're going to take and we're going to create a committee. All the people on that committee were off that list of 500 people that did not want to have a fire code in in Hanover County. But Mike said, don't worry about it. Uh, great insight and sure enough we started out and he said now what you're going to do Russ he's going to sit down and you're going to take the Boca code and you're going to start at like chapter 15 and you're going to start going towards the end we'll worry about the front later on and when we got to chapter 15 uh, they added they, they started taking it away and chapter 15 which is probably 20 pages if I remember rightly ended up being only two pages they were deleting by the time that we and we educated we talked to them I met with them twice a week and by the time we got to chapter 22 and 23, all of a sudden they started adding things. By the time we got to chapter 28, it was twice as big as what the Boca Code just said. And we, then we got back to chapter 1. And so we got that code actually adopted by the board. And then, of course, the state code came along a few, uh, a few years later. So what was, the, what was the change in mindset? What, did, they, did they suddenly see the light? Oh, this is actually a good thing for us as a business? Well, education. And that's what uh, Mike told me I was going to do. Chief Harmon said, you are going to be an educator, and you're going to give examples. Um, I was fortunate that I had run some calls, in particular in uh, uh, lumber mills, that I was able to show pictures of what would happen if we didn't do this and we didn't do that, and was able to go in and say, okay, this is the repercussion. This is what happened when that happens. And we fortunate, thanks to, uh, again, not just Chief Harmon, but others that uh, – uh, convince these individuals that we could be trusted and listened to, and, and they did. They started to listen and did a wonderful job. Well, so it was as much relationships and just sitting down and communicating with them as anything else. That is exactly like. right. Yes, sir. So what other uh, – what what big incidents or what um, – from your time in Hanover, what really sticks out as a call or an incident that uh, might be worthy of chatting about? Well, um, the first thing that happened is not call so much, but the number of um, – investigations that we started doing uh and that just hadn't happened 
again, picking and making a good relationship with the sheriff's office. And that was the other thing that Chief Harmon did, is you want to turn around and make them work with you, or you work with them. And in doing so, that um, all the arrests I made, I would turn around and process them, and I'd always do it on Hanover Sheriff's Department stationery, always do it, and, and they got the credit, which they needed. It wasn't an ego thing at all. They needed to have clearance of records mm-hmm. is what they were going for. And so they found that I could provide them a service, and they backed me up. Not only backed me up, gave me all my equipment, they provided everything that I needed, and it was a great relationship. And I had mentors there that were phenomenal. But as far as incidents go, <clears throat> we had one year we had ten fatalities, separate, you know, as different incidents, and going through that was quite traumatic. But I think the biggest thing people want to hear about is pentaboring. And I can tell you right now, I had very little to do with the pentaboring. Uh, when that incident took place as fire marshal, I'm standing back, letting the chief handle everything that's going on. But what I had to do is that once they isolated, they had the uh, material they suspected was a problem that caused the sickness and fatalities. Um, At that point, they put it in a special container, and I'm driving down the interstate, Code 3, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, what am I doing? (laughs) You know, uh, this this gas that's in this container in the back of my vehicle, God forbid if anything happens. Uh, And for those who aren't familiar with pentaborine, when that happened, Two of the individuals that were there uh, working, they were trying to uh, neutralize all these chemicals. They didn't know what they were. They had no idea. And they were going through a chemical process to neutralize them. And when they do that, they started getting sick. Two of them uh, collapsed and died. The third one was uh, uh, being transported to the hospital, and he got in the ambulance. And the EMS personnel, before they even got on the interstate, started having the symptoms, and they had to pull over, and now they they got permanent injuries as a result yeah. of this and that whole thing. So that investigation and going in the background of that was quite fascinating. Um, but other things that I think, uh, and I wish I could tell you there was some huge fire, like the Ashland Roller Mill fire. Um, when that took place, we could, I was all the way down in Henrico County, and I saw the, uh, this is north of Ashland, where the Ashland Roller Mill fire took place. I could see the smoke column from Henrico County and uh, responding up there and figuring out what happened and, and, and doing those type of investigations was certainly fascinating. But I think of all the things that really I get the most of is the fact that what I did with the people that I arrested. I had, um, it was hard for me putting cuffs on somebody. You know, I, I, I go back when I'm teaching and tell people that, oh my God, you know, remember when you were a kid? And you got blamed for doing something, and you got punished even though you're innocent. Well, think about that in the bigger spectrum, that someone's putting the cuffs on you, you're innocent. And I had a great colleague of mine from Chesterfield who uh, turned around and said, Russ, you're not the judge and the jury. If you've got 51%, you make the arrest. Well, I had to have 90 or better, okay? He made a lot more arrests than I ever dreamed of. Who was that? Uh, it was a detective. Okay, all right, okay. we'll leave it there. Leave it at that. <laughs> I got you. Uh, awesome, awesome guy. I, I look up to him so much. But he, um, he, I understood what he was saying, and I agree with it. Now, when I teach, I always bring him up, uh, the simple fact that you've got to decide as an investigator which one you're going to be and which way you're going to go. I agreed 100% what he said, but I just, I had to know for sure 100%. So one of the other mentors, when I brought this up to them at the sheriff's office, um, he said, think about a way that you can, how you're going to treat that individual and what can you gain from it. And at that point, um, what I did is I always treated him with the utmost respect. Uh, I had grandmother that uh, set a fire, God forbid, you know, 
there, but for the grace of God, could be anybody that got in the situation. Her husband uh, had died. She had no money, no insurance, and she burned the cars up that her truck that her husband had. She didn't have a driver's license, and the kid, Christmas was coming up. She wanted to buy toys for the kids. Yeah. All the way to the extreme of the dirt bags, as we might want to call them, we shouldn't. Um, that might set the fire for personal gain or for just spite and revenge type situations. Didn't matter. I treated them the same no matter what. When I got to court, and we'll talk hopefully about that in a little bit, about how we're going to handle those type situations in that training. But I always made sure that I never let emotions get in there, no matter what. Um, and at this point, I then wait until after the trial was over, and we're going to turn around and we're going to have the, the uh, hearing on their sentencing. And at that, I would then go over to the local jail, find out what the cigarettes the person might have used, what sodas were they drinking, get them into a room over there, and we sat down and we talked about what happened. I was never turned away. They wanted to talk almost every, not almost every day, every time they always wanted to talk. I walked out with a better training and better knowledge. They would tell me how they did it. They would explain what went on, what failed, what didn't work, what did work. And with that point, they would even tell me about other inmates and what crimes they committed and uh, gave me information. (laughs) And I walked away with a much better feeling about that. And uh, I think Sonny's um, was a place that burned down. Um, And it was the whole thing was just unbelievable. Uh, It was a bar, a local bar. And when that had burned, uh, we went in there. We found gasoline and a tray and a book that was open in the tray, which was the debit book. And uh, it was open to a particular page. There was a person's name. Uh, All the coin boxes have been taken out of all the machines. And as I'm collecting that information, and and when I got there, the first thing that happened is the guy said, oh, my God, they came out after doing the knockdown. And when they got outside the building, they were reeking of gasoline. So gasoline had been poured everywhere in there. And one of the firefighters, um, he noticed a car in the parking lot had been blocked in there, and he told us about it. We went over and talked to this individual, and uh, he said he just fell asleep. And we read him his rights and talked to him and said, uh, can we look in the trunk? He said, if you can get that trunk open, you can look at anything you want. Well, don't tell a truckie that. <laughs> the truckie's standing right behind me. He's gotcha. six foot four, halligan bar on one shoulder, fire axe in the other shoulder. And he said, boss, want me to open the trunk? Uh-huh, want me to open the trunk? <laughs> and at that point, I said, help yourself. I have never seen this happen before. In one strike, that darn trunk opened. How often have you ever done that? Seriously. And inside were all the coin boxes. Uh, even the uh, a couple of cases of beer with the name delivery de- uh, destination delivery Sunny's Bar uh, was on there, and we made the arrest. Now, the reason I bring that up is, again, treating him and doing what went on. You never know what's going to happen later on. Uh, I left Hanover County. I was in the private sector, and I went in to get my company car brakes fixed. And the guy looked at me and said, you don't know who I am, do you? I said, no, I don't recognize you. And he said, you sure you don't know who I am? So uh, he laughed a little bit, and they went and fixed my brakes and came out. And as he's filling the paperwork out, and I'm giving him the company credit card, because, uh, again, private company, private INS investigations. And uh, he said, you really don't remember who I am? And I said, no. He said, do you remember Sonny's? And when he said that, it dawned on me. This you owe me a trunk guy. lock is what you owe me. Uh, there, <laughs> this is the guy I arrested. He did seven years. Wow. And he's laughed, and he says, hold on. He said, I don't want you to worry. 
And he went out, he got in my car, took it down Broad Street, came back in, honest to God, on Broad Street. He was doing 50 miles an hour when he came in the parking lot. Locked it down, it left a black streak on the uh, parking lot. Proven. He said, they're safe. I'm proving you, your brakes work. And what he said is that I was drinking, I had problems. He said, since I got out of jail, I've gotten remarried, I have kids, my life is awesome. And that right there was a justification I was still doing the right thing. There you go. And so it so felt pretty good. Cool. So uh, he set the groundwork for you in Hanover, too. Is that he did. The- Russ taught me everything I know about investigations and inspections. He just didn't tell me everything he knows about that. Ah, so then you'd be as smart as he is. But uh, it was a great entrance. Um, everything was established. It was in place. One thing uh, that Russ said and, and Chief Harmon, along with Chief Birch, said is you've got to build relationships in the county and continue to foster those relationships that are built. And so in the first few weeks or so forth, Russ and I would communicate back and forth. And I said, you know, how am I going to have the most impact in the county? Um, You know, you've established the fire code. It's there. What am I going to do? He said, go to every school in the county and do an investigation. Because if you can make the mothers and fathers feel like their children are safe because you've inspected that school, you went over this county. And so we did. We inspected every school. We also went to every church in the entire county. Still a one-person show. Uh, it was a couple of years before we actually brought on any extra people. But our whole focus wasn't to come in with an iron fist and a gold badge and a sidearm. Our whole focus was to build a relationship with the community, and then the community would come around to you. And so when you made the schools safe and you made the churches and places of public assembly safe, then uh, you won folks over. You know something I just remembered, too, is what we did, too, is that we had the volunteer fire marshals. Mm-hmm. And that was something phenomenal. When we, when we finally did get a part-time paid, I found that the volunteers worked 10 times harder. And nothing against anybody that was there, but they were there because they wanted to be there. And uh, they did great work as far as pub ed and fire investigations as well as inspections. Now, were they volunteers out of the stations, or were they somebody else who no just a lot were career in other jurisdictions mm-hmm. that would come out to the county and their their spare time to give back to the community would be in the volunteer fire marshals program and they would assist and respond a lot of pub ed uh, and code enforcement plans review see that was the time when hanover was really beginning to explode mm-hmm. yeah a lot of growth happening there mm-hmm. hey you mentioned uh you left Hanover and went to the to the dark side of fire investigations. Uh, what drew you that way? Well, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, the guy that was uh, in charge of INS investigations in Richard Branch, and INS investigation was a national firm. Uh, I, I can't even tell you how many investigators there were, but uh, it was a big firm out of New Jersey, and and I always gave the guy a hard time when he walked in. I said, "Oh, I don't have, I just I don't have to open the door for you. Just slide underneath, you know, that type of thing." So it gave him an awful time, but we, we really were good. And he helped out a lot. And I learned in the investigations how to use, I shouldn't say it that way, but how to use the resources the private sector had without compromising us, without doing anything of collusion. I was very big on making sure that ever happened. But um, he walked in finally one day, and he said, um, we've got an opening. And uh, he said, I'd like you to come work for me. And I said, I have no interest whatsoever. And I'll be honest with you, probably as fire marshal, if I had to guess back then, I'd make like 16000 a year if I think about all I'd That'd be about right. And that was top and, notch. Oh, yeah. Big money. And uh, so he, tad- he knew already. He had a piece of paper and a pamphlet, and he slid it on the t- desk and walked away. And I read it that night with my wife and everything. It doubled, almost tripled my salary. A uh, company car that I could use, my wife could use, my kids could use. Wow. All gas paid for, even for personal use, uh, the whole nine yards. And it was just so many benefits that I, I did. I, I 
oh god i, I went over to the dark side to say <laughs> the least i really really did yeah. <clears throat> but i think uh and it was i'm sure you got some stories from back at the end of those days but i uh, really wanted to get into um, what I think is a real huge legacy in Virginia Fire Services, the work you did uh, at fire programs and uh, getting the Virginia Fire Marshals Academy set up. Uh, how did you get to fire programs? Um, actually, fire programs called me and said, would you come in and give us a hand? Because with INS investigations, uh, if we didn't work fires, there were no fires coming in, you did nothing. You could go out and play golf if you want. You, you market or do what you had to I do. Want. That's a job I want. So um, I put as much as when they called, it was just the beginning of the spring, and I had very little fire cases to work on and only a few depositions. So I went up there, and uh, they had regretfully let go of the person that was the manager of inspections and investigations. And I started working with them part-time. I'd already been an instructor with them since... Uh, so this was teaching those programs, not necessarily doing the inspections. No, it was... Fire Mar State Fire Marshal's Office, was that... In DHCD then? Yes, State okay. Fire Marshal's Office within Department of Housing Community Development. So the only thing that they hired me for is to manage the inspections and investigations training. Because okay. that's all that was there. And they actually called me an investigations manager is what it started off to be. Uh, when I showed up and started going through all the things, um, I actually called uh, Chief Wayne Baber. Because uh, he and I had worked a lot of fires over the years. Uh, Henrico uh, was probably the best friend I had as fire marshal. Uh, and helped me out, and so uh, Chief Baber came up, and we sat down and looked to see what was going on. And when we did that, uh, and I'd already been there a couple of months, and I'd put in for the full-time job, and I should say that I got the full-time job, and that's when I called Chief Baber. And we started going through the records. Now, in order for you to have police powers or summons powers in the Commonwealth of Virginia, you had to maintain 40 hours or 16 hours of inspection training. And come to find out for five years, none of that had been recorded. None of that had been maintained. And I thought, oh, my God. And I was thinking about leaving. You know, what type of message do I want to go out there to the entire fire marshal world and tell them, by the way, you don't have police powers? By the way, nobody's what, certified. And, and what, what happened to the arrest that they had made yeah. or anything they may have done taken place? So I decided to bite the bullet. Chief Baber convinced me. He says, as long as you're there, I'll stay. And so we went and got the message out there. We already knew. And that was one thing of the transition of going from the private sector is I already knew defense attorneys were having classes and getting people to teach you how to refute a fire marshal. So I already knew that they had an association they were doing that, so I was well aware of it. So at that point, I thought, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We need to, not only do we need to get the records in here, and we went out and asked people to turn it in. There were some very upset people. But I took a lesson I had from the Hanover and the fact that, okay, we're going to do this. I went to all the associations, that uh, Northern Virginia Fire Marshal Association, Central Virginia Fire and Arson, which... At the time, I think I was still president of that association. Um, TRAP, Tidewater Region Arson Panel, and we got together and we let them turn around and help us set things up. Not only get the records back, but we said, Wendy, you need classes. So the whole thing that I had done, and the one thing I, I'm so proud of, is that it wasn't Russ Chandler, it wasn't Wayne Baber. It was the fact that we did a coalition of our own. We got all the fire marshal together. We said, okay, what do you need? When do you need it? That's how we set up classes. Not when fire programs thought they should be. When do you need them? Bring that mic just a shade closer to you. Okay. Pull, it up, pull it up to you. You can go. There you well, go. Well, actually, there, there we go. go. It moves both ways. There we go. Cool. Um, so once we had done that and got them uh, on board, and we, I went to every single meeting 
that they had, monthly meetings, and that was my rotation. But I took everything they had and what they needed, and I made sure not only the executive director, but I went also to the fire board. The fire board, is the pay, they were the ones that can make things happen. They needed to know what was going on. And I had their support. They were just absolutely phenomenal uh, as far as getting things going. But one of the things I said we had to do is we had to increase the credibility of the fire marshals in Virginia. I had already been on Central Virginia Fire and Arson, uh, familiar with several things that had happened to us. Number one, as we had some fire marshals that uh, they went to make an arrest, and because they had a Maltese cross, the guy said, you can't arrest me, you're a firefighter. Uh, another thing that had happened is that one of the guys who had gone through the very first fire marshal academy schools, I'm sorry, very first investigator school, academy didn't exist then, uh, he got to the point that he actually had someone he was going to apprehend and he yelled halt and then he didn't know what to say. And so he said, in his mind, he tells a story, he's in mind, he's going, well, nanoseconds, he, I'm not a police officer, so if I yell police, am I, you know, am I impersonating a police officer? And, and he said, well, I'm fire service. So he said, halt, fire. Well, the guy hit the ground, you know, for obvious reasons. So uh, rounds are coming down. Right oh, down. yeah. So when I, in all those things I put together and I said, we had to have a symbol. I, uh, the five point stars, the first thing I looked at the sheriff's office because I'd worked with them so closely. Come to find out there's a law you cannot. And only sheriffs can wear a mm -hmm. five point star in Virginia. What an eye over that was. So I went to the secretary of the Commonwealth and petition for a seven-point star, and absolutely, and I'll go for it, whatever you want to do, as long as it has a state seal in the middle. And uh, I actually had uh, fire programs just got one of their first real computers. Honest to God, I, I kid you not. Um, and they turned around, and the young person that we had hired made the seven-point uh, star and put the information in the middle of Virginia Fire Marshal Academy. And we turned around and took this to the board and said, this is not just the academy. This needs to be out there that every single fire marshal in the state, should they desire it, can use that seven-point star. We need to have just five-point star, you know it's a deputy. Seven-point star, you know it's a fire marshal. So that's how that got started. It was just a desire I had to make sure that we had a symbol of authority that we could go out there and, and have it as a tool for our job. Interesting. Yeah, I never knew the, the star story. I, in my department, we just used our badge with the state seal in it instead of the county seal. and. Never knew we could have we could have gone with it, something truly unique. That's interesting. So we're um, so the fire marshal academy that I went through, and I went through in oh two three time frame. Uh, how long until that model was set up, where you had the fire truly the fire marshal's academy, and underneath that umbrella, the ten thirty one for inspections, ten thirty three for investigations, the law enforcement school, and all the other programs that were attached to it how long did it take to get that set up um i started in 91 um, i was a, a part-time 90 but 91 is when i finally got hired and i am embarrassed to tell you i can't remember the exact date when that took place but i had by 92 and 93 i was selling it i think in 94 is when we finally started mm -hmm. uh, one of the other things that happened also is the previous classes that had taken place state police used to do them my class that i took i was in the second one wayne babers in the first i was in the second one it was with state police. It was at their academy, and it was all state police instructors. We'll kind of find out they have been alienated regretfully uh, and no longer wanted to be part of the program. Uh, they had gone out and done some other things and some terrible things that happened that I was advised of, but I had to get that re respect back. So it took a little while to actually sell the idea, and when I said we want to be the Virginia Fire Marshal Academy, again, I went to the Fire Services Board, told them, showed them exactly everything I had set up and what I wanted to do and what the law said, said, and they authorized it, plain and simple as that. So I think it was 1994 mm -hmm. 
is when we first got it. And it was just inspections, investigations. The legislation set up and said that the law enforcement school is actually 1033. But I asked the board that we amend, needing to amend the law. Instead, what we did is we had an administrative law. And the administrative law, I said, we're going to make the fire investigator two weeks. That way, even if you don't want to be a police bar, this is a big thing I was pushing, is that you don't have to have police bars to be a good investigator. Uh, let's face it, captains and lieutenants that are on the scene, they need to be investigators. Mm -hmm. So the 1033 school, I wanted it to be just two weeks to start off. I knew I needed to have more than that. And then we took the law enforcement school and made it four weeks. And I did that because we had a great relationship with the Department of Criminal Justice Services. And George Gottschalk was there, and he's the one that helped get it all together. And they came over to the fire board and said, we support this 100%. So that's what we did is in 95 was the first time that we actually had a law enforcement school and the 1033 separate and 1031. Those are all ongoing. Independent. Independent. It wasn't until years later, a couple of years later, actually, I think it was 97 or 98, we finally got into, which, again, is, I used to teach pub ed down at Steamer 5. That's how long <laughs> ago that was. I was at King's Dominion. But we finally got, uh, we hired an individual, Keith Arnold, uh, to help us out with public education and he with our support started the fire life safety coalition and we started then getting our 1035 programs and get that approved by the fire board again so it was an opportunity it was an awesome opportunity well wow. and it, the, i mean there's a ton of history there too um you know you, you took time to write down a couple of names and some other legends and this this list only gives me more ideas for more guests on this uh, podcast but uh unfortunately a couple of them aren't around anymore dave creasy we lost a couple of years ago he was he's kind of one of the other inspirations for this is uh wishing i could have had him on here because he preceded me as a fire marshal in chesterfield he went to the city ultimately and i wound up tapping into his vast knowledge uh, a lot of times as i sat in that seat saying hey what happened when uh but names like carl mercer and Harold Adams and they're just legends in the fire marshals academy and uh, Bobby Ralston bull as you mentioned him here um, he's he's going to be on a podcast too I've actually got him on deck him and Mike Martin talking about canines and accelerant canines so uh, that'll be another one on the list to, to did you just up. see where the uh, city canine got a ballistic vest ballistic vest yeah yeah, yeah. It's neat. so they're taking care of them just as just as good as they're taking care of their 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 uh, investigators so I always told uh Bobby, I had a highly trained investigator with uh, Bobby on the other end of the leash to take care of him. So. <laughs> any uh, any good stories out of those law enforcement schools? I mean, I've got a couple from that we probably shouldn't record, but uh. Uh, yeah, and matter of fact, that's part of my problem. But one of the things I had to make sure I did is that um, I know that I could be. Um, they, they would get a lot better. They didn't need the boss over their shoulder. Okay, I need. I didn't need to be there all the time. And besides, with Carl Mercer and. Uh, uh, Rick Moorefield there. I mean, I didn't need to be. But um, when I went down, uh, we were down at Camp Pendleton and down at Virginia Beach, and they always made sure I had a cottage that was separate because I had to do a lot of paperwork in order to get everything straight for them. As a matter of fact, I was up till 2 o'clock in the morning the last week making sure all the certificates were done and all the things were ready to take place for graduation. So I was a little bit separate, and I didn't know everything that was going on. And uh, all of a sudden I heard this music. Uh, going on and uh, I looked out my window and all of a sudden I recognized it was our cadre they were uh, black jackets black robes uh, Andrea had a staff she was in front she was one of our cadre members <laughs> she was the druid 
and uh, they had a pickup truck with a casket on the back of the pickup truck and they're marching down the road at Camp Pendleton going to our meeting area the last week we have a scenario where we have role players we had as much as 20 25 role players are in there and part of the role play was this group this satanic group that was causing fires and so the cadre uh, not that they got a little carried away but the cadre decided to let the students see the investigators see what was going on and so they held this funeral for the suspect and as they did that which i didn't even think about it but all of a sudden you know that you feel like somebody's looking at you and I turned around, looked behind me, all the traffic at the base, all the Army and Air Force guys stopped their vehicles, got out, and they saluted the casket. They had no idea whatsoever that this was role play. And I very quietly went back in my cottage and closed the door. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but there were a lot. Uh, there was uh, key things I think that I loved. It was Carl Mercer. Uh, what a phenomenal him. And. And, of course, we all miss Rick, to say the least. He's passed away. But uh, if you don't do what's right, someone's going to be in your house drinking your beer and petting your dog. And uh, so there are a lot of gifts that Carl got for different things that took place and many things I guess we don't want to talk about in here, which were okay, but just not for this podcast. I mean, my perspective in in talking with Ricky and and, and, um, Carl, both during class and kind of after class, it's – as two police officers, you know, that, that was their career. Um, they were trying to make it as close to a police academy for fire marshals as they could, and I think they did a tremendous job. It wasn't the same kind of police academy that those new recruits were, are going through today, but uh, Rick, uh, Ricky pretty much told us, we, our job here is to stress you to the point that we want to see if you can handle the stress of this job. And I think they did that through those scenario-based. We did surveillance. I mean, there were a lot of checks and balances on that surveillance piece that they went out there. But uh, and some some very resourceful students of putting uh, reflective decals on bumpers of cars to make sure we could see where they were going. And uh, so I, it, I think it was a very realistic kind of event, particularly when we got to the point where we were at Pendleton and we were at a little bit more of a, a secured area and we could be a little bit more – realistic in the scenarios if you would like the the funeral for the for the suspect so uh hats off to those guys i learned a lot from them and uh i know a lot of the colleagues i went through a fire through through, through that academy with ones went to work at the atf he's now a right. recognized investigator for them and uh, one of them was uh instrumental in the arrest of the dc serial arsonist that's correct um so um the they, key thing about the law, law enforcement academy is that it was unique uh, when and a local fire marshal wants to get police powers, they can go through the local DCGS Academy, but they have to go through the entire Academy. I was able to get DCGS to agree to a uh, abbreviated Academy, but they had to test that individual and say they were yep. a good and everything. Yeah. But when you went through a police Academy, you're taught to be a patrolman. You're taught traffic. Yet when we went through the law enforcement Academy, it was all DCGS topics. They were all their lesson plans, but instead of three or four days on domestic dis, uh, disputes, we only maybe had three or four hours because we'd teach them how to get in there and how to get out safely. But the rest of the topics were the same thing. They were being taught to be investigators, not patrolmen. Patrolmen, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Well, we've been, we have been at it for oh, well over an hour. Um, no, don't be sorry. This is, uh, this is what it's here for. So uh, if anything else, uh, you might have gotten yourself another invite back. Maybe we'll get uh, Carl Mercer and Bobby Ralston in here one day and we'll – 
Let's make sure we can get some stories on the record, and we may have to heavily edit some of those, but uh, it'll be fun, I'm sure. Anything else about your career you want to share? Uh, you know, what, what other fun things did you get in the middle of uh, working either in fire programs or since you left? Well, and I think the most important thing of the committee work that I did, uh, 921 was such an eye-opener. Uh, to be on that committee with, uh, um, with people that are just phenomenal, nationally and internationally phenomenal, and to sit there and learn so much from them and to be able to have a voice in that. Um, that was the one thing I think I enjoyed. And, of course, as uh, we started talking before we even started uh, this uh, podcast about the opportunity I had at the International Fire Chiefs and to working with uh, phenomenal individuals there. And they all added to, as I keep preaching, we add to the sum of our experiences. Well, all those things added to the sum of my experiences. And I was so fortunate to be at the right place and be able to get those things and those opportunities. And uh, just to kind of wrap it up, uh, you you also note in your notes here, you were not only on the career side, but you were a volunteer as well in in Hanover. Spent uh, some time in the volunteer ranks there as well, right? Uh, 50 years volunteer, 42 years career. Um, And I'll be honest with you, I think I miss the volunteers more than anything else. Um, I, I call them my kids. Uh, but um, even when I came to Hanover as a fire marshal, I could no longer be a volunteer. Uh, and I went to, went to the Caroline County and volunteered up there. But um, towards the end of it, um, I had gone to Bear, Chief Carneal, and mentioned to him that, where do you need me? I was at four at Ashland. I was at Doswell. And he said, Company 5 needs the most help right now. And I went there just to be a firefighter. That's all I wanted to be. And as you know, those things happen. I ended up being district chief uh, three, two or three years later. Uh, that tour as district chief probably gave me some of the best satisfaction in my career to be able to see the young guys come in there. And we were. We were training them to be career firefighters. That's what we wanted to push them towards. And so many of them did. And that just felt so great. But I miss my kids. I got you. You got anything else, we? Well, we usually try to wrap it up, Russ, with uh, a nugget that you'd pass along to the uh, any new recruit or prospective member that's listening, something that you can give them to take away. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, the one thing we – and one of the things you brought up, Robbie, which I really like, what would you say to the law enforcement school and graduation? And, uh, and I, I have done this before, and it's almost verbatim to what I had done as far as telling them what we wanted them to do. And that was to, they must be a seeker of truth, not a case maker. That's one of the commandments of the IAAI, is that you must be a seeker of truth. And when seeking the responsible party, you want to be an open mind. And uh, make sure when you assess that individual that um, you're looking to not only find the guilt part, but the, also the innocence. Is there evidence there that proves their innocence? You have to present that as well. And that's one of the things I always wanted to make sure that they were fully prepared for. And most importantly, as I mentioned earlier, treat them with respect. They are for the grace of God. Um, when I mention the grandmother that set the cars on fire, and I tell them that story, um, I also bring up that I went back to the judge, and I said, Your Honor, this is what's happened. I don't want to bring this woman into court and anything like that. And he said, Have her in my chambers. And uh, 2 o'clock, and I think it was on Monday. And I showed up at the chambers, and at that point, what I had done is <laughs> – uh, we went in there, and she was dressed. She knew she was going to be hearing the judge and talking to him. And the secretary opened the judge's door and uh, to his chambers. He was in his robe, had the gavel, and he had her set down. He had me present my case and what had happened. And he hit the gavel and looked at her and pointed the gavel at her. He says, young lady, she was 69 at the time. You know, old 69, I have to say. 
because I'm over 69. I don't think I was that old. But anyway, he pointed the gavel at me and he says, I'm going to find you guilty. But he said, I'm not going to make you any record of it as long as for 10 years you'd be a good person. And she walked out thinking that she'd been adjudicated. And as we all know, that's not the case at all. You can't right. do that. But she was so thankful for that. And what was really sweet is the fact that I got to talk to her several times. And uh, I went to her church, and we talked about fire safety. And she went with me to talk about to young kids what you shouldn't do as a grandmother and things like that. So those are things I would want to pass on to them is treat everyone respect. You don't know what's going to happen, plain and simple. And it take every opportunity to learn no matter what. I really stress that. You had to add to the sum of your experiences and make sure that you your brotherhood is, in the, as far as the law enforcement students, the brotherhood now is law enforcement. Uh, you have the brotherhood. You're at the fire station where they're going to have your back no matter what. You now have to earn the respect uh, of the, the law enforcement community that not only are they going to be there for you, but you're going to be there for them. And that has panned out. We've had several fire marshals over the years that have backed up police in several instances. Uh, guns drawn. That's what it's all about. So that's what I'd pass on to the morning thing else. Russ, thanks. And uh, I, I kind of have to hearken back to that, that point of uh, treat them with respect because you never know if he's going to be working on your brakes in seven years. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> A great point. Anything else, Wheat? No, sir. I'm good. Thank you. Well, uh, Russ, uh, just to wrap it up, thanks. Uh, thanks for making the trip down today. Um, Thanks for your service to the communities you've served from Maine through Virginia and Petersburg and uh, setting up what has certainly become a, a benefit to me in my career in the Fire Marshals Academy and all the advice over the years. And uh, we do appreciate it, and thanks for sharing your stories. And I thank you, sir, for this opportunity. Thank you, Russ. And with that, uh, just remind everybody to uh, that we do have an email address, uh, firehouselogbook at gmail.com, if you, uh, if you want to send a message. Uh, we're on Twitter at FD Logbook and Instagram at FD Logbook Podcast. And um, we're on Facebook as well. If you just search Firehouse Logbook or the at FD Logbook, you can keep in touch with us there. Send us messages, give us ideas, give us feedback, and uh, keep track of when the next episodes are going to show. So with that, Wheat, Russ, once again, thank you guys so much for being here. And uh, we'll talk to you soon.